0: So you're at the gym, you're working out, you're on one of the isolateral lat pull-down machines, you just finish up with your set, and you pick up your water bottle because it's empty, and you need to go to the water fountain to fill it up. And when you go to the water fountain, there's a sign above the, uh, the water fountain. As you're filling up your water bottle, you're reading this sign, and, and the sign says, The Myth of Protein. And underneath that, it says why protein powders don't actually do anything. And so that gets you thinking, do they not do anything? Is there no real purpose to protein powders? And so you ask yourself, well, I'm a listener to the science behind that. So what is the science behind protein powder? Well, let's talk about that on today's episode of the SBT. Welcome to the science behind that with Atticus Hamilton. Hello, all you scientists, and welcome on back to the Science Behind That podcast. I am your host Atticus Hamilton, and if you couldn't tell from the little intro we had there, this uh, this happened recently to me. You know, I was at my university gym, and I was doing the isolateral um, latissimus dorsi row, and uh, I needed to fill up my water bottle with some water, so I went over to the Water bottle filler upper machine, and uh, I saw this little sign like above the machine that said the myth of protein, and underneath it, it said that why per, recent studies suggest that protein powder is useless and that you can get your real protein from whole food sources like fish and chicken and etc. So I thought, you know, I saw that and I was like, you know, that'd be a really, really good science behind that episode. And so here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Um, So to answer, I guess, this question of is protein powder actually useless, we're going to have to, I guess, go through three problem solving steps. The first step is to address the different compositions of protein powders on the market, because I don't know if you guys know this, but there is a lot of different um, protein powders on the market. That's number one. And we're going to talk about the composition of them and how that affects uh, the function of those powders inside our bodies. That's number one. Number two is we're going to talk about the activity requirements of proteins, I guess, protein powders, and more of like how activity of individuals changes protein requirements and whether or not that makes protein powders useful for certain people. And of course, number three, we're actually going to talk about the biochemistry of what protein powders actually do, when they're ingested by somebody and metabolized in the human body. So stay tuned. Uh, Before we do that, I invite all of you guys to go and grab yourself a nice steaming hot cup of coffee, add a little bit of maple syrup in it. So pause right here, go do that, and come back and we're going to jump right into today's episode. Hello everybody and welcome on back. I hope you guys grabbed yourself a nice steaming hot cup of coffee with a little bit of maple syrup in it. Um, I know I have some right next to me, so I may be periodically taking coffee breaks. So as I mentioned, to answer this question, we need to break it down into three parts. First, number one is what is how does the composition of different protein powders affect the usefulness of those protein powders? Number two is um, how does an individual's physical activity affect the need for protein, and therefore, does that affect the uh, the usefulness of protein powders? And number three, of course, is the biochemistry of, of what is actually happening inside our bodies when protein when we ingest protein powder. So, starting with number one, um, a lot of you guys probably recall the episode I did about like a month ish ago called "What Is a Meat Analog?" and in that episode, I broke down. What is a um, plant-based meat, and how useful is it to the human body? And, and one of the things that we talked about was there's only one plant-based protein that uh, in, in which a hundred percent of it can be utilized by the human body, and that's ultra-processed soy protein. Now, some of you may be saying, "Well, what about mycoprotein?" Atticus, well, mycoprotein isn't a, m- mushrooms aren't plants. But you are right that mycoprotein or mushroom protein a hundred percent of it is metabolizable by the human body so whey protein ultra processed soy protein and mycoprotein those three of you know if you consume one of those three a hundred percent of whatever that is can be used by the human body so how does this relate to protein powders well i'm sure many of you have seen in in the supermarket like um, these containers, like meal replacement, 24 grams of all plant-based protein. And it sounds really nice, doesn't it? You know, plant-based protein, no, no cows, um, no animals. But when you actually read the ingredient list, only 6% of it is soy. The rest is like pea or bean or asparagus protein. And so only 6% of that 24 grams can be utilized by the human body or 1.44 grams. So out of that big jar that says 24 grams of protein per serving, in reality, only between 1.44 and 3 grams of it can actually be used by the human body. Coffee break. So considering that then, um, those big jars, if it's not a 100% ultra processed whey, uh, uh, soy protein, it's pretty much useless because your body can't break it down. And why is that? Because that gets down to stereochemistry. Plant proteins are of different stereochemistry than animal proteins. And the, um, uh, pepsidase in our stomachs have evolved to break down animal proteins, not the stereochemistry associated with plant proteins. That's why soy has to be ultra processed. And that processing, involves a series of chemical reactions to change the stereochemistry of soy amino acids um, so that they can be used by the human body. So the moral of of part one here is that if you are going to pick a protein powder, make sure it's either whey protein, 100% uh, ultra processed soy protein, or mycoprotein. Um, For those of you vegetarians or vegans out there, mycoprotein is probably your best option. So now that we understand that, and we understand that there are some protein powders that are completely useless (laughs) regardless of who you are, let's jump into how does physical activity affect protein demand and uh, protein requirements. So on average, the average American man who's sedentary, mind you, no physical activity, will require between 56 and 60 grams of protein per day. The average sedentary woman, American woman, will require between or around thirty grams of protein a day. So, how does this affect physical activity? Well, if you're like me, um, and you go to the gym for three hours a day, and those three hours consist of all weight training, so I do like a thousand push-ups a day, eight hundred pound leg press a day, you know, um, bench press, etc. I, requ- I need a lot of protein. And so I was actually curious here. I was like, how much protein? And for my weight, I'm 170 pounds, so around 77 kilograms. I need minimum 77 grams of protein a day. And between 77, ki- uh, 77 grams of protein and 138 grams of protein a day. And I did the math and daily I ingest around 108.5 grams of protein a day. So one of the main things on that sign was you can get all your protein from whole foods and it's cheaper than protein powders. So I don't know about you guys, but I eat six times a day. And three of those six, me- three of those six times that I eat are full-on meals consisting of like either the main item, either being fish or chicken. So looking only at those three meals, that's 60.5 grams of protein. So if I didn't use protein powder or like protein bars or something like that, I would be in a protein deficit. So what do I eat as a substitute for that? I eat like these, they're called Epic venison bars. Oh my God those are so good. I recommend that to everybody. And I, I also like whey protein. So I ingest that as well. And that brings me up to 108.5 grams a day. So it would cost me a lot because uh, an eight ounce filet of salmon has at most like 20 grams of protein in it compared to one serving of protein powder is 24 grams of protein. Um, And an 8-ounce filet of chicken is at most, I believe, 24 grams of protein if it's really, really protein-dense chicken. Um, And so for someone who's on an exercise regimen similar to what I'm on, it would actually be more expensive to go for just fish and chicken and no protein powder because some of you guys are lucky and live in, like, um, countries that are ripe or places that are right by the ocean where fish is really cheap. It's not so cheap here in Colorado. It's about uh, $11.99 a pound um, for salmon. And uh, it's around between 3 and $5 a pound for chicken. Compared to you can do one one purchase of a big jar of protein powder, which would be about Eh, two and a half pounds of salmon, and that would be good for a month. So, in terms of that, it's 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 actually cheaper to do the mixed whole foods and um, uh, protein powders. So, I think the summary then here is, ladies and gentlemen, that it kind of that that you can't just blatant blatantly say. Yes, protein powder is good, or no protein powder is useless because it depends on who you are. You know, if you're somebody who works out uh, for three hours a day doing weight training, your protein demands are going to be vastly higher than somebody who doesn't work out or somebody who just does an hour of running a day. Um, And that's just down to step three, which is what does protein actually do in the human body? So let's talk about that. So let's say you ingest... I don't know, like a whey protein powder, you know, let's say you ingest a serving of whey protein powder, which is 24 grams of protein. When that enters the stomach, our enzymes that are produced by um, chef cells, it's either chef or chief cells, I don't remember uh, how to pronounce it, in the stomach, um, the enzymes produced by them, one of them, pepsin. Is going to denature that protein so they're going to cut all those or break all those hydrogen bonds between amino acids in that tertiary structure and they're going to break it up into one long strand of amino acids then each one of those amino acids is going to be cleaved off from there the amino acids dissolve into the bloodstream and they go to the cells that need it the most when you're talking about just coming after a workout, a three-hour workout, those are going to be your myocytes. And they're used to repair myocytes. And how does that work? Well, before we can talk about that, let's talk about how myocytes are repaired in the first place. So um, muscle cells don't really replicate. So the muscle cells that... So once you reach puberty, the muscle cells that you have at puberty, you'll never have more muscle cells than the muscle cells that you have at puberty or myocytes. You may have less by the time you die, but you probably won't have more. And the reason for that is because there's two different types of strength training workout. There's what's called a feeding strength training, and there's something called, um, uh, tension or stress training. And these are two very different things. So let's first talk about feeding. So, feeding strength training is basically when you do a workout to get, as you would colloquially call it, a pump. And that pump is when your muscles are really tight and they're really big because there's a lot of blood going to the mu- muscles. And the muscles will take the nutrients out of that blood and the individual myocytes themselves will expand they'll become bigger which will make the myofibrils better or bigger which will make the sarcomers be- bigger and the sarcomers are like the individual long string-like components of skeletal muscle and so that'll make it bigger but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get stronger and this is a big a big thing here so somebody can be extremely strong without really big muscles And they could be stronger than somebody who has really big muscles because there's a difference between a feeder training and a uh, stress or tension training. So again, in in summary, in feeding training, you're essentially just feeding those muscles a lot so that they get bigger. But that strength doesn't necessarily increase. The strength increases when you do a tension or stress training workout. And that's when you're actually... tearing myofibrils apart themselves and when you're tearing myofibrils apart what happens is they release cytokines which signal to a very special type of cell um, either a, a mesenchymal stem cell or a keloid cell and those will come to the site of mus- of a muscular damage and they will repair the muscle tissue by fusing myocytes together And they'll fuse myocytes together with a type of tissue called keloid tissue. Now, keloid tissue is colloquially called scar tissue, but this is not like you know the scar from your appendix removal tissue. This is a very specific type of scar tissue. It's a high-tension, high-stress capacity scar tissue that's composed of collagen, um, keratin, and actin. And these filaments fuse myocytes together. And when they fuse myocytes together, that increases the overall strength capacity of the muscle itself. But you need amino acids to do that, right? And that's where protein comes into play. So remember how we mentioned that protein will be cleaved up into all the component amino acids? Those amino acids will be carried by the blood to the site of um, muscular tension or the... um, um, myocyte tear, myoskeletal tear. And those amino acids will be used by mesenchymal stem cells and keloid cells to build those, um, that to build that keloid tissue that fuses those myocytes together. And that increases an individual's strength over time. And so as long as your muscles have enough protein and amino acids and you're doing enough workout, um, enough of both a feeding training and a stress training over time your strength will um, uh, visibly increase and therefore ladies and gentlemen the sign that said the myth of protein yeah it's inaccurate but it's inaccurate simply because for some people protein powders don't make any sense but for other people they are vital to receiving the daily required protein intake now, do they necessarily you know make your muscles bigger like is it oh well if i don't work out but if i just down a couple protein shakes my muscles will get big no of course not of course not unless there's androgenic steroids in there which is a thing in some brands <laughs> but no 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 you need to combine it with the proper exercise and so therefore um protein powders and protein supplements do have their place it's just they're not a they're not for everybody. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you guys have a fantastic Friday and a fantastic weekend. I think I might have just ripped a suit that I'm wearing, so that's really sad. Be careful after you get back from the gym with that awesome pump. I'll see you guys on Monday. Remember, stand up and question everything.